Thank you all who are with us here in our sanctuary today and all those of you joining us for our service online. It is so great to have you with us um, for our worship service this week. I have uh, been excited to learn that some people have begun worshiping with our church online who have never yet been in our building. And uh, for those of you who would like to learn a little bit more about our church because you're new to our church, I think one of the best ways to learn about our church is by studying what we call our vision frame. Now you'll see the vision frame briefly on your screens. And if you consider it as a window frame through which you're looking, uh, in the future you see what we call our vision 2025. That I think is the best way to learn about the type of church we are and the type of church we hope to be. You can read our Vision 2025 on our website. But what I want to say to you this morning is that our vision frame is kind of the foundation for a new member class. We're going to do something we've never done before later this month. We're going to do an online new member class. And so if you're one of those who's new to our church and want to just learn more about the church that way. You can sign up, up for that by filling out your Hey, I'm Here card today. It starts a week from this Wednesday. Well, today we're continuing our series that we're calling One Story. It's kind of hard to believe that we just began back in January with the book of Genesis. We're now at the book of Luke. And as I was thinking about this yesterday, I was thinking about how much has transpired in 2020 since uh, we began. I hope as we've studied the unity of the Bible, the way Old and New Testaments fit together, the way all 66 books comprise a unified whole, that you have grown in your trust in the authority and the inspiration and the integrity of Scripture. Because in a year like this, we need a foundation on which to build and base our lives. Jesus himself said in the very chapter we're studying today that those who hear his words and do them are like those who are building their houses on the right foundation so that when the floods come and the rains come, the adversities of life come, that house will not be shaken. God's word is our sure and solid foundation. Now, Today we're in the Gospel of Luke. Luke is the third gospel in the New Testament. And um, Luke wrote two books in our New Testament, the Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts. Would it surprise you to know that Luke wrote more words than any other New Testament writer? Now those of you who've read the New Testament are saying, what about the Apostle Paul? Now the Apostle Paul wrote 13 books of the New Testament. But if the sources I consulted are correct, I didn't count the words myself, Paul's 13 books are about 32,400 words, and Luke's two books are 37,932 words. That means Luke, who wrote the Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts, wrote more words in our New Testament than any other author. Luke was a physician. He traveled with the Apostle Paul on his missionary journeys. He was also an excellent historian. And he presents his writings as history. And uh, there's some key themes in the Gospel of Luke, the book of Luke. And those key themes include, number one, the ministry of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit really is, is front and center in chapter one of the Gospel of Luke all the way to the end. 
Another key theme in the Gospel of Luke is the kingdom of God. Another key theme is salvation and salvation for the whole world and the great joy that accompanies that salvation. Another key theme is God's love and care and concern for the poor. Uh, Luke talks a lot about God's care for the poor. Luke also focuses on some important parables, some that are found only in the Gospel of Luke. For example, the parable of the Good Samaritan. Where would we be without that? It's found only in the Gospel of Luke. The parable of the prodigal son, found in the Gospel of Luke. Parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. And today we're going to look at the passage that Sarah read a moment ago, one of Jesus' most important uh, teachings in the Gospel of Luke. And I want to kind of give you the setting of this teaching just for a moment. Jesus has begun his ministry at this point, and he is being persecuted. He's even hated by some of the religious leaders. We read earlier in Luke chapter 6 and verse 11, they were filled with fury and disgust with one another what they might want to do to Jesus. At this point in his ministry, people are already thinking about how they can put him to death. And then in verse 17 of the chapter we read, he came down with them and stood on a level place on a plane, we'd say, with a great crowd of his disciples and a great multitude of people from all Judea and Jerusalem and from the seacoast of Tyre and Sidon, who came to hear him and to be healed of their diseases. And those who were troubled with unclean spirits were cured, and all the crowd sought to touch him, for power came out from them and healed them all. Now imagine that you're there. Jesus has come down onto this plane, this level place, and, and crowds are flocking to him. And people just want to touch him because power is actually flowing out from him and healing people. Now, the healings of Jesus were visible, definite, clear, remarkable. We're not just talking about a, a slight headache or an ingrown toenail. Jesus healed people who who couldn't walk, people who were paralyzed, people who were blind, instantly saw people who had leprosy and instantly were cleansed. And people sought just to touch him because of this great power. And now with this great crowd that's gathered to see him and to be healed of diseases, he begins to teach. And he begins by noting that his disciples, those of us who are his followers, are called to care for the poor, the hurting, and the persecuted. In Luke 6 and verse 20, we read, He lifted up his eyes on his disciples and said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you should be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you should be satisfied. Blessed are you <coughs> who weep now, rather. He goes on to say, blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven, for so their fathers did to the prophets. Now, I want to pause there because to me, I find this one of the most one of the more, a lot of Jesus' passages are, are challenging. I find this one of the most challenging and a little bit troubling. And here's why. Jesus said, blessed are you who are poor. Blessed are you who are hungry. Blessed are you who weep now and you laugh. 
And I think about myself, and I think, well, I'm, I'm not really poor. I'm not hungry. We've got more than enough food in our house for probably a few weeks. Uh, not weeping and mourning right now. And then he goes on to say, and blessed are you, and people hate you and exclude you. I find his words especially challenging in light of what he says next. He says, but woe to you who are rich, for you've received your consolation. Woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. Woe to you, laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Woe to you when all people speak well of you. And I don't know about you, but I find this a little bit troubling. Is Jesus saying you've got to be poor to enter the kingdom of heaven? And that is what some people believe and some people teach. Now, this sermon sounds a lot like the very well-known Sermon on the Mount that's found in Matthew chapter 5. There are two different sermons with a lot of the same content. They're clearly different because in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is sitting on a mountainside. Here, he's standing in a plain, a level place. I find the Sermon on the Mount a little easier because there Jesus says, Blessed are the poor in spirit. And that's a little easier to take, you know. We know our need, we're humble, we're poor in spirit. But here he says, blessed are the poor, blessed are those who are hungry. What does he mean? It helped me to read what commentator Daryl Bach says about this passage. That these four descriptions, poor, hungry, weeping, being persecuted, they really are one portrait describing these disciples to whom Jesus is speaking. They're folks who are being persecuted for his sake. And yes, likely some of them were losing their jobs and finding it very, very costly to follow Jesus. I don't think it would be correct to say, you've got to become poor to enter the kingdom of God. That's not what Scripture teaches. Jesus says to enter the kingdom of God, you've got to be born again. You've got to be born from above. You've got to be regenerated by the Holy Spirit, whether you are poor or whether you are wealthy. But I do think Jesus is pronouncing a particular blessing on those who, because of their faith in him, as you see in the words before you, those who revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man, Jesus is pronouncing a great blessing on his disciples who are willing to stand up for his name, though they may be persecuted and rejected and suffer in some ways. I will stress this, however. The Gospel of Luke has a particularly strong emphasis on the need for disciples, those of us who call ourselves followers of Jesus, to especially care for the poor. The Gospel of Luke is where Jesus said, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because He's anointed me to preach the Gospel to the poor. Some words that I've always found particularly striking in the Gospel of Luke are in Luke chapter 14 and verse 13 when Jesus says, When you give her a, a dinner or a banquet, don't just invite your friends and rich neighbors or they'll pay you back. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you'll be blessed, for they cannot repay you. He goes on to tell a parable about a man giving a great banquet, and he sends out the invitation to the community to come to his banquet. And people begin making excuses. They begin saying, uh, I bought a field, and I've got to go see it. 
I've bought a five yoke of oxen. I've got to go examine them. In other words, I've got too much stuff. I'm too busy with my stuff. Then he says, go invite the poor. Go invite the needy. And then go to the highways and hedges. The implication is the poor may be even more receptive to the gospel because their lives are not cluttered with quite so much abundance. So how do you and I take these words in 2020 as Americans living in what has been historically one of the most wealthy nations in all the world? And I think the call of Jesus for us is to make sure we're remembering his call to care for the poor. And we're asking ourselves, how can we increasingly and more effectively care for the poor, the hurting, and the persecuted? Secondly, Jesus is calling us in this passage to show unconditional love to everybody, even to our enemies. And remember, these are his disciples now. They've started following him. There are people out there already wanting to put Jesus to death, and he knows his own followers will be persecuted. And so he says in Luke 6 and verse 27, But I say to you who hear, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. Now look at those verses carefully for a moment. Look at those words carefully. They imply that followers of Jesus will have adversity. There will be people at some point, if we follow him faithfully, who hate us, who curse us, who abuse us. Jesus himself demonstrates throughout his life and ministry, even in his death on the cross, this submissiveness to the Father in loving our enemies. As Luke records in Luke chapter 23, as Jesus being crucified, he looks out and he says, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. I think the greatest mark of a follower of Jesus Christ should be love. The love of God that he puts into our heart. Verse 35, Jesus says, uh, a few verses later in this chapter, but love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great, and you will be called sons of the Most High, for He is kind to the ungrateful and evil. Now, when Jesus says you'll be called sons of the Most High, what He means is you'll be like your Heavenly Father. You'll be like Him. You'll be imitating Him. And He, your Heavenly Father, is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Throughout this passage, what Jesus is teaching his disciples is that you are to seek to be like God. You are to seek to be like me. Compassionate toward the poor, always. Loving your enemies, always. Even blessing those who curse you. Because your heavenly Father, God, he's kind even to the ungrateful and the evil. Believers are called to a much higher love standard than the world around us. In the midst of this passage, Jesus says, If you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? Even sinners do that. If you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? Even sinners do that. In other words, even the worst of people love the people, you know, who they really want to love, really good to them. You're called to a higher standard. Love your enemies. Love your enemies. 
You'll be sons of your Father in heaven. Jesus calls us to show care for the poor, to show unconditional love, even to enemies. And thirdly, to show generous mercy rather than judgmentalism. He says in Luke 6.36, Judge not, and you will not be judged. Condemn not, and you will not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. Again, what's he doing? He's calling us to be like our Heavenly Father. I am so grateful that because of what Jesus did on the cross for us, God's posture toward us is not one of condemnation, of judgment for our sins, of unforgiveness, but rather one of forgiveness and mercy. Judge not, and you will not be judged. Condemn not, and you will not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. Given, it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be put into your lap. Again, the reason we're to do this toward others is this is the way we've received mercy from God through Jesus and His sacrifice on the cross for us. He has not condemned us. He's rather forgiven us. Now, our calling as believers is to be generous with showing mercy. But I've got to pause here and just reflect on two words. And they're really two of the best-known words that Jesus ever spoke. And frankly, they're often misunderstood and misused. They are the words, judge not. Two of the words that that many people would know Jesus spoke, but they've given rise to a lot of misunderstanding. Most people know Jesus said, judge not. Few people know that Jesus also said in John chapter 7 and verse 24, judge with right judgment. So which is it? Are we to judge or are we not to judge? I want to just give you a real quick summary of, of the way I I think about this idea of judgment. There is a time to judge. There is a time not to judge. There is never a time to be judgmental in attitude toward another person. Let me try to really quickly explain what I mean. There is a time to judge. A lot of places in the Bible call people, particularly those in leadership in God's kingdom, to judge. There's even a book called the Book of Judges. God appointed judges himself. Church leaders are often called to make judgments. If you want to study a book of the Bible where a, a church is rebuked because they did not judge flagrant, visible sin in their very midst, they were letting it go unchecked. A good chapter for you to go and read today would be 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Other good ones are Revelation 2 and 3, where Jesus rebukes churches for failing to make judgments and letting some flagrant sin go unchecked in the midst of the church. What would it be like if we had someone here in River Oaks who is a known drug dealer in this community, and they were shielded from any kind of arrest or prosecution because they had so many people working under it, but everybody knew they, they, they sold drugs and they were getting uh, kids all over the community addicted to drugs. What should our posture of, uh, as a church be if that person were a member of River Oaks? Would we say, judge not? Of course not. Of course not. 
you confront something that harms people and harms the body of Christ. There's a time to judge. There's also a time not to judge. If you want to read a chapter of the Bible that explains this and spells it out, a good one is Romans chapter 14. It's there that the Apostle Paul says, why do you pass judgment on the servant of another? He's talking in the context there about not judging other Christians, other believers, over non-essential matters of the faith. Very clear in that chapter. He lays it out very clearly. There's a time to judge. There's a time not to judge. But there's never a time to harbor a judgmental, condemning, unforgiving attitude toward other people. And this, I think, is what Jesus is talking about in this passage. If you'll leave those words on the screen from Luke 6, 36 uh, to 38, when he says, judge not, as we read them in their context, condemn not, you'll not be condemned, forgive and you'll be forgiven. Jesus is talking about a haughty, condescending, looking down upon others attitude that assumes the worst in someone else rather than the best. He's talking about being a person who shows generous mercy to others because we have received generous mercy. I'll notice a verse here that is, I think, often misunderstood. Give and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over will be put into your laps. Now, I don't know about you, but throughout my life as a Christian, I think that every time I have ever heard that verse used, it was used in regard to giving money. Has anybody else ever heard this verse used that way? I've, I think I've probably used it myself that way. <laughs> Give and it will be given unto you, good measure, pressed down. The Bible does teach many places that God blesses and rewards those who give faithfully. But I don't think that's what he's teaching right here. I don't think Jesus is talking about monetary giving here. I don't think in the same sentence he says, judge not and you'll not be judged, condemn not and you'll not be condemned, forgive and you'll be forgiven, give and it'll be good and it'll be given to you. I think what he's teaching here is that when we are generous in giving out mercy and non-judgmentalism and grace and forgiveness to others, that mercy and grace is measured back to us. That's why the book of James says, He shall have judgment without mercy, who shall no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. So the calling of this verse, we're not only called to love our enemies, we're to be called to be people who are generous in mercy showing. Give and it'll be given to you. Finally, Jesus is calling us, I think, in this passage to see our own sins before we see the sins of others. And he says, and I suspect when he told it in his culture at his time, people saw the humor in it better than we might see it today. He says, why do you see the speck that's in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that's in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, brother, let me take out the speck that's in your eye when you do not see the log that's in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take out the speck that is in your brother's eye. Isn't this incredibly different from what we see in our world? In media, in political ads, everything around us, it's attack the other person, protect myself. A disciple of Jesus must be different. 
noticeable to the world around us by our differences. We see our own sins, faults, weaknesses with the help of the Holy Spirit before we see the sins of others. This is hard to do. At least I find it hard to do. I have to confess my sins before you today. Um, I find myself, I found myself violating this passage while I was preparing this message. Yes. On Tuesdays in my little home office when I prepared these outlines, I was in the middle of studying this passage, preparing this message when I learned of something. It didn't involve anybody in the church. It's completely outside of the church. But someone who I thought had made a very costly mistake. And I got really angry. And fortunately, when I called, my wife said, you didn't sound the least bit angry. But I know I was angry on the inside. And you know what I learned? I was the one who made the mistake. I was 100% sure I was right. And I was wrong. I didn't take the time to really examine myself and circumstance to see where other I might have been wrong. Those of you who are married, has that ever happened in a conversation with your spouse where you were 100% sure, 100% sure you didn't leave the keys where they were found and you later discovered you were 100% wrong? It happens. As Christians, we're called to see our own stumblings, failures, sins before the sins of other people. This is a, a tall order from Jesus. Can you imagine being out there? You come to Jesus to see all these remarkable healings. And now he says, this is what it's like if you want to follow me. Called to care for the poor and persecuted. Called to show unconditional love, even to your enemies. You're called to be generous with mercy rather than judgmentalism. You're to see your own sins before you see the sins of others. The, the question is, how? How do you do it? It is not possible by working up enough willpower or discipline. I think the simple answer is being filled with the Holy Spirit. Jesus doesn't call us to change ourselves by the power of our own human reasoning or intellect or discipline or will. Jesus teaches us the way. He shows us the way in his own example, and then the Holy Spirit empowers us to walk in the way. I want to go back to the very beginning of Luke, just, just to note how striking the importance of the person of the Holy Spirit is in the Gospel of Luke. You won't see these verses before you, but in Luke 1 and verse 15, we read that John the Baptist, who's going to go before Jesus, is going to be filled with the Holy Spirit, even in his mother's womb. Secondly, in Luke 1 and verse 35, Mary is told it's the Holy Spirit who's going to overshadow her so that the one born of her will be called the Son of God. His name will be Jesus. It's also in Luke 1 and verse 41 that uh, when Elizabeth, her cousin, hears Mary's greeting, the baby leaped in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. Later in Luke chapter 1, uh, her husband Zechariah is filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesies. Everybody's being filled with the Holy Spirit, and we're only in the first chapter of the Gospel of Luke. And then 
We get to Luke 3, and Jesus is baptized. And as he comes up out of the water, the Holy Spirit descends in bodily form upon him. In Luke chapter 4 and verse 1, Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returns from the Jordan where he was baptized and is led by the Spirit into the wilderness. In Luke 4 and verse 14, he returns in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, beginning his ministry. In Luke 4 and verse 18, he's picked up a scroll and he's beginning to preach from the book of Isaiah and says, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. It is the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God, who's bring about the work of the kingdom of God through Jesus and through God's people who are involved in this. So how does he call us to be the disciples we're supposed to be? In Luke 4 and verse 24, we fast forward to the end of the book. And here's what Jesus says to his followers who've been with him three years. They've heard him teach. He says this, behold, I'm sending the promise of my Father upon you, but stay in the city until you're clothed with power from on high. In other words, don't go out and try to do what I've told you to do by yourself. You'll never evangelize the world in your own power. Don't even try. Go and stay in Jerusalem until you're clothed with power, endued with power from on high. That happened on the day of Pentecost. The Holy Spirit indwells every person who has embraced the saving work of Jesus. The Holy Spirit is the one who opens our eyes to realize our sin and our need for the grace that's shown us when Jesus died on the cross and paid for our sins. It is the Holy Spirit who regenerates us so we're born again, or as Jesus said, born from above, bring us into the kingdom of God. But we Christians have a tendency to live with great disregard for the Holy Spirit. This is why the Apostle Paul so often reminds us of the work of the Spirit and calls us to walk in the Spirit and calls us to be filled with the Spirit. The Lord does not expect us to make ourselves into mature Christians who show generous mercy and who love even our enemies in our own strength. The things that God works in us are called the fruit of the Spirit. Things like love, joy, and peace, because they're fruit the Spirit produces in the life of a believer who's yielded to the Holy Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit. So this morning... I want to ask you to join me in seeking a greater work of the Holy Spirit in our lives individually, in our church. This is, this is quite an unusual year, isn't it? I think this is a year that will one day probably be in the, the history books. But I want to raise a question this morning. That is, how does God want to work in my life during the COVID pandemic? What does God want to do in me? What does he want to do in you during this COVID pandemic? Adversity provides an opportunity for growth in your relationship with God. Provides an opportunity for spiritual growth.
Now, I know it's, this is an incredibly hard year for many people. I don't want to diminish that in any way. I know some have lost jobs, businesses have closed. It's been terribly hard for many. But I do want to say to you that difficult times provide opportunity for much spiritual growth if we'll look to God and draw our strength from Him. And so this morning, I want to ask you to join me as we pray about a greater work of the Spirit in our lives individually and in our church so that we don't just go through this time, we grow through this time. So would you join me as we pray now? Father, we stand before you in the great name of our Lord Jesus. How we thank you for your mercy. How we thank you, Lord, that you have not condemned us for our sins and that the Son of Man, Jesus, came not to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. Lord, for any watching our service or here with us today who have not yet embraced your salvation, draw them to yourself, we pray. Father, draw them into your kingdom. For those of us who are believers, Lord, would you forgive us for our disregard of the presence and the power of the Holy Spirit. Would you fill us, please, Lord, individually and as your church with your presence. May we have a greater work of your Spirit as we worship you together and serve you together. May we be people who are noticeable before the world around us by the difference in our lives, by the love we show even to those who may hate us. May we not just go through 2020, may we grow through it so that we will end this year having come to know you better and love you more and walking in a greater fullness of the wonderful, beautiful Holy Spirit. And we ask this in Jesus' great name. Amen.